Jordan Erica Weber, Dan Pierce, Harriet Jones, Sarah Wellock, Jake Tucker, Carly Velucci, Tom Francis, Daniel Sito, Robin Honecky, Sam Barlow. What is your favourite game? My favourite game. 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 My favourite game is. In your mind's eye lives a memory hard to find Blinded by sorrow and a cold voice Sings a melody here I sing Hell frozen Like what we know now of you, and rather kind of the first game that we more or less can say you perhaps we know you from is Silent Hill Shattered Memories. And a lot of people look back on that game with a lot of fondness, especially considering how downhill Silent Hill got beforehand after 4. And like looking back on that now, like how, how do you see? Shattered memories now. Uh, after how long has it been? It's been six years since it came out, right? Yeah, it'd be about that. Was it? Yeah, two thousand nine came out at the end of the Yeah, I mean, you know, we. It's a weird one because when we finished that game, obviously, you wake when you're making a game, you're just aware of all the compromises uh, that you're making. So, um, I think when we finished it, we were quite proud of it, but we knew that it what it wasn't going to be a perfect game, um, and. So, I think we was we were surprised by the reception at both ends of the scale. So when there were people who really really loved it, we were like, "Oh wow, cool!" Um, but then when there were people that really really hated it, we were like, "Really?" Because you know there was some there was a, you know a few kind of extreme reactions from people who felt it wasn't true to the series or or, or what have you. Which um, and yeah, maybe they, maybe they still have that opinion, but. Um, as you say, with all the other different bits and pieces and directions that the series has gone in since, um, kind of puts that in perspective. But, you know, still very proud of that game. Um, you know, people still come and talk to me today about it, and the particular bits they liked or how much it meant to them. And, um, you know, we got to, I mean, there was a, I remember there was a point where we changed producers at Konami. And this was kind of... This was like early days of development, but the game as it was was, was fairly locked in our minds and, and on paper. And the producer came in and he kind of looked at the list of things we're doing and he was like, so you're planning to completely overhaul how combat works in this series, plus you're doing this giant seamless world thing, plus you're getting rid of all the UI to make this more immersive thing, plus you're doing all these crazy Wii features, plus you've got this idea of the psychological profile driving it plus you're doing this narrative thing with the twist and plus it's this reimagining that isn't quite a reimagining um wouldn't we better off picking one of these <laughs> to focus on because you know the, the level of risk if we're going to do all these things is crazy but I, at the time we were like well no let's let's just try and do everything because maybe we won't get this opportunity again and you know again go, there's a good war inspector quote somewhere about he would rather have a huge crushing failure than have just kind of attempted something easy. And so it kind of felt 
a bit like that. But I think as well, we'd come off... Um, the team uh, did Sample Origins, which was a game that we took on halfway through development that had a troubled history. And we to, essentially kind of started from scratch in some ways. There were some assets that we were able to use, but we threw out a lot and, and kind of started from scratch, but with half the time and half the money left. So with that game, we ended up purely for kind of practicality's sake, making a very traditional Silent Hill game, very much hewing to the traditional formula, um, just so that we could end up with something that worked and was polished and wasn't um, kind of an embarrassment. And so coming off of that, and, and you know, the, the kind of reception to that game was, uh, it was, it was fairly decent. The negativity was generally that, A, um, the story wasn't particularly great, which is completely fair. Um, I mean, the, the concept of a prequel to Silent Hill 1 is a very strange brief anyway. But um, And, and the, the main criticism was that this genre feels stale. You know, it had Resident Evil 4, which had done something to take horror games in a different direction. Um, and so we knew that we needed to shake a lot of stuff up, and we knew that we didn't want to shake it up in the Resident Evil 4 direction. It almost wanted to go in the opposite direction um, to be true to, to kind of Silent Hill and what we thought Silent Hill meant. So, um, yeah, so still very proud of that game. Um, it'd be really nice if someone stuck it on the eShop so more people could play it. It's kind of it's a weird thing just seeing how like social media has helped her story in terms of people talking about it and, and kind of spreading that buzz. I think if Shattered Memories launched today you know, into a scenario where you could have that kind of awareness on social media and people could talk about it. I think it would have done much better. I think more people would have played it. Um, but as it was, it kind of, you know, released a very little fanfare. There wasn't human marketing and it was on Wii at the point where, so, you know, a lot of people had started to kind of um, move away from Wii. So it was, it was a tricky one. Um, just basically more of a word of mouth type of thing. To... Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love to know how many people actually ended up playing Shattered Memories because, again, you know, today if people hear about it and want to go play it, it's not the easiest kind of game to track down. You know, it's physical copies. I don't think there's a huge number of physical copies out there. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I think, yes, it's a, just the general reception now, like, you know, back then, and I think about it, we were one of the first games to really push that idea of running away from enemies. And now I think, you know, if you talk to people about horror games, they go, oh, Slender Man, Amnesia, you know, Outlast, you know, running away from enemies is almost the default now for a kind of scary psychological horror game. But back when we made Chattered Memories, that was like hugely controversial because whatever the genre of horror you're doing, it was kind of expected that you would be collecting a shotgun and you would have health kits and you would have ammunition to manage. You know, that was that was just the done thing. So a lot of the stuff we were doing with the story and the way that the story molded itself and the things we were doing with combat, and just the type of story we were telling were, you know, very um, different back then. And I think now would be much more um, kind of people would be more likely to get into those things and kind of get behind. Do you still, like, we'll, we'll get into your mind forever voyage now in a second because we've really gone on at length, but I will ask, um, like, is there, is there still something there in that you want to work on another, perhaps another Silent Hill game? Like, or, or even to, I'll, I'll, I'll 
let me rephrase the question. Like, how do you see the Silent Hill series today? And is there kind of a sort of ambition, like, to maybe do something on like another Silent Hill game? Uh, it's, it's a weird thing. After Shat Memories came out, mm. I'd probably have said no, just because it felt like we'd put a lot of our ideas into that. Um, having done two Silent Hill games at that point, it was clear that the support from the publisher, the kind of the, the kind of reception, it was it was a complicated franchise to work on. And then we did end up doing some other pitches for that, which were quite different, quite interesting. But I think I actually said to someone before it happened, the only way you can make a Silent Hill game now is if Kojima was behind it. Just because there's, I mean, the thing that doesn't work about Silent Hill is the size of the audience for that game does not match the budget you need to do it justice. So if you look at the classic Japanese Silent Hill games and the things you remember about those in terms of the production values, you know, everyone brings up like the quality of the character models in Silent Hill 3 you know, just the ambition and the texture and the quality of those games. At a PS2 level, that just, just made sense. I mean, it didn't ultimately, which is why they stopped making them. But, you know, you can just about uh, justify those expenses. I think now on the tech we have, a Silent Hill game for me requires, you know, a photoreal look. It requires uh, performances and an emphasis on that kind of aspect of storytelling that is of the highest quality. And the weird thing about games today is that is the remit of the blockbusters. You know, that is, you know, the best performance and face animation we get in games is in something like Uncharted, which is our blockbuster popcorn efforts, right? We So to take the niche psychological horror franchise that is Silent Hill you can't no one's going to spend that blockbuster money on it so it's like i said for me at the time it was the only way this will happen is if someone like kojima gets involved because he's the only person that's going to be able to unlock uh, that disproportionate spend within konami um so then when that did happen that was interesting like, but, uh, yeah sorry like i was gonna say but what did you think of pt i thought pt was cool um i mean i doubt very much that the game that he would have made would have been anything like PT. I think PT was very much a kind of interesting, uh, you know, you know, I mean, Kojima was famous for doing lots of wacky and weird promotional things and stuff. Um, so, you know, I mean, PT was fascinating to me because, you know, we had sequences in Shattered Memories that were these strange, uh, dreamlike, looping domestic corridors. And, you know, there was a, you know, in our game, there was the emphasis on kind of detailed exploration of some of these kind of domestic environments and things like that. So seeing that in PT was very gratifying and cool. Um, you know, the, all the framing of it, of it just being dropped with no name, the mystery around it was very cool and very clever. That definitely felt that was kind of, you know, tapping into the zeitgeist or whatever. Um, I mean, I personally wasn't crazy about the the kind of subject matter of the kind of um the kind of uh, serial killer vibe and that kind of material just because i think that's there's a lot of horror stuff that uses that material and i think that's a lot of people's kind of go to when you say here's a dark piece of horror that's their expectation whereas i think for me personally the bits about silent hill that are most evocative are the slightly more personal stories they're not about people who 
and that removed from kind of common experience you know there's there's a lot of empathy it's about the struggles internal to them and stuff so um pushing things in in, in towards that kind of material isn't my personal take on silent hill but you know just in general i think pt was very cool obviously it showed people that there was you know an appetite for that kind of thing but um as to whether that would translate into justifying the the kind of a metal gear budget being applied to it who knows well it's a shame we'll never see that especially considering it's a kojima game that isn't metal gear a very rare rarity in itself yeah the the handling of metal gear 5 has been very interesting because if you think back like every time he's done a game kojima said this is the last one i don't want to make any more i want to stop making metal gear but obviously, with with the kind of the way he exited Konami, this this recent one has now been played up as, oh no, we'll never get to see another Kojima Metal Gear, and him saying, oh, it's very sad to say goodbye to the series and stuff. Um, so it's it's worked out nicely in terms of how how that plays to to him and his kind of uh, personal mythology. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to see what he does next. Absolutely, and like every time, like like you say, every time he does say, oh, this is going to be my last. Metal Gear game, it's more of a boy crying wolf kind of scenario we'll, we'll, we'll take it at face value when you meet it, and it does seem like this time it actually is going to happen. Yeah, it would be a very impressive uh, media performance if it all turned out to have been a, a charade. I was more open to just going into a shop and looking at a, a game and be like, you know what, I'll give that a shot. I don't, I'm not going to, I don't necessarily care too much about the reviews or whatever. I'm just going to, the box art looks nice. It sounds kind of cool. I'll give it a shot. In fact, that was the reason why I first played Kingdom Hearts mm. uh, because I walked into a game station and it was in the summer. I was really bored and I saw it on a shelf and it, the, co- the cover art was cool Uh uh, but to be honest, because, you know, I was an angsty teen that was like, you know, full of himself. I thought, oh, Disney. No. Nah. Even though the fact I play, as I've already said, I played Disney games as a kid. Yeah. I was like, Disney? Uh, no, that's kiddie. I don't want to play that shit. I'm an <laughs> idiot. Um, but then it always had, obviously, Final Fantasy characters in it. So I was like, and I was like oh, it's got Final Fantasy in it. And it's made by Squaresoft. Mm. And the reviews were okay. They said that the reviews said that the game was pretty good. So I was like, I don't want it because it's Disney. But at the same time, it's got the Squaresoft name. Fuck it. I'll take a chance. I'm going to buy it. So I bought it, and it was fucking amazing. I was like, oh, my God. This is the best thing since whatever the best thing before that was. 
to be fair, that was more or less the same reason why I bought Metal Gear Solid 2, because of the box art. Really? Yeah. Like, I saw like I saw the box art, Yuji Shinkawa's box art, in a paper, uh, in a newspaper, I think it was the Daily Mirror, um, and it was an advertisement for the game uh, at one of, basically the Irish equivalent of Blockbuster, and I saw, mm. and like, I saw it there, and I was like, you know what, I want this, and I, I basically be- uh, begged my mum, who, who uh, let me get the game, even though it was scary as fuck towards the end of that <laughs> game. Like, you won't believe. Like, and I shouldn't have been playing that as a, what, what was it, 12-year-old at the time? No. Yeah. Should not, oh, sorry, 11-year-old at the time, because it was rated right at 15, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, should not have played that in hindsight as a, an 11-year-old, but that was... <laughs> But that was more or less the same reason why I got Metal Gear Solid 2. It's it's a vain reason, but it's but uh, but at the same time, I don't know where I'd be without that game because like I say, The Last of Us and Metal Gear Solid 3 are perhaps two of the most influential games I've ever played in terms of my career. But mm. if it wasn't for Metal Gear Solid 2, I don't know where I would be in terms of not playing Metal Gear Solid 3, because I say Metal Gear Solid 3 is the reason why I wanted to write, but at the same time, Metal Gear Solid 2, if I hadn't played Metal Gear Solid 2, I, I chances are I probably wouldn't have played Metal Gear Solid 3, because I hadn't, I hadn't played Metal Gear Solid 1 mm. at that time neither, uh, beforehand. Like, I, the only time, like, the first time I played Metal Gear Solid 1 was for the first time, proper, besides an old OPM demo, um was actually six years ago. I only finished it for the second time last month ah. uh, for pre- uh, preparing for the Phantom Pain. So, yeah, you're you're not alone on that booth for buying games on box art alone, put it like that. You know, I kind of I kind of missed that, you know, having that kind of carefree attitude as a kid or, you know, as you're younger. Because, I mean, the older you get, I don't want to say the more jaded you get. And especially, I guess, because gaming culture has changed. You know, it's a lot... With the internet, the flow of information is so much, you know, even subconsciously you get affected by, you know, people talking about stuff and reviews and stuff. So it's, I don't, I don't think I, even if I wanted to, I don't think I could go into a shop and, and be like, hey, that looks kind of weird. I want to play that. Or that looks kind of cool. I want to try that. Because I think, I think we all just know too much about games these days. So we'll look at it and be like, actually, I know what the game's kind of like. I know you know, you've already made the decision before you've even seen it, mm. like, physically, whereas, you know, the kid, without the internet, you know, you can take a chance. You'd be like, I have no idea what this is like. And, of course, you've also got the benefit of being a kid and being a bit stupid and not realising a bad game is a bad game. Because I still love Bubsy the Bobcat, even though I've only played really, like, the first two levels. And apparently that game is, like, one of the worst ever made, according mm. to the internet. So like, yeah, you well, know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I do because I have South Park Rally, and that's one of the worst games ever. And yet, I fucking love it. <laughs> fucking legendary game, that game. Everyone should go and play South Park Rally because it's the best. <laughs> I'm going down south. I'm gonna have myself a time. Friendly faces
Honorable mention, so go for it. Well, I love the Mass Effect series. Who doesn't? Um, exactly. I was going to say that's nothing surprising or controversial to say. Um, it's wonderful. <laughs> what, what what game would you say is perhaps your favorite of the series, then? I'd say two. Everyone says two. And, and right, yeah. rightfully so, too. Yeah, like, I like three, and but one was a little tough to get through. Yeah. It took me a few tries to get, like, my exact ship so that I wouldn't die all the time. Um, but yeah, two also has just the best story and the best companions. And, uh, my play, my first playthrough of two was tragic, but in a way that made it more interesting. Cause I kept trying to romance, I was femship and I kept trying to romance these characters. I couldn't romance as femship and it was so frustrating <laughs> and I was so, I was so upset about it. Oh dear. Oh dear. <laughs> Like, like, who were you trying to romance? I kept trying to romance Jack, but... No, no, no. That's, that's, that's not too bad. It's not, but at the same time, she you can't romance her as femship, which is no. stupid. Which is very, very stupid, because she's canonically bisexual. Yep. <laughs> so that's why I was like, oh, I could totally try and romance you. And then after a while, I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't, nothing's happening. Uh-oh. <laughs> I screwed up. <laughs> I think... Um, for me, like my, I, I played as femship as well, and I, and my femship was bisexual as well. Um, but I didn't really try anything on one. But for two, I I was with Chambers, and then for three, oh god, I'm blanking on her name. But like, who was who who, who was your assistant in three? I can't remember. Uh, I'm totally blanking too. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, that's, who, that's basically who I had in free because, you know, my, my femship likes to play the field, basically. Uh-huh. Um, but I, like, whenever anyone compares between, let's say, whoever was in free and uh, Chambers in two hours, say, Chambers, man? Oh, <laughs> Chambers. Yeah, but in the end, it turned out that, you know, Liara's my space wife forever because I romanced her in one and then I ended up romancing her in three. Um and Garrus is my space bro because we're best friends. And I totally support him and Tali as a couple. Thumbs up. She's a wingman. My femship's a wingman. <laughs> which which kind of makes Citadel and Mass Effect Free uh, very interesting as well. It's a, it's a little interesting. With um like I uh, like I never had um I think Tali died in two for me. Uh, she did she did die for me in two, so I didn't really uh-huh. prepare them together. So I but there was, I think it was Gareth, and, was, and he's in the bar, and you have to try and uh, set him up with someone. Uh, <laughs> and it was hilarious. I mean, like, Citadel's basically a, a, a hilarious but emotional caricature of a piece of DLC. I love it. Oh, it is, but I, I love it so much. And I, I just love making Gareth feel really embarrassed in general. Like, um, making, like, I know you're supposed to, like, treat him. Well, but I'm like, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna let you in. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, just to kind of move on from our femships kind of romance states, um, <laughs> like the Mass Effect series, like I can honestly see that you know dating very well. Mass Effect free ending aside, but like otherwise, I can really, really see that being a a very big influence anyways in terms of how to tell you know stories that mean something to the player because like like we, me and you we can connect Mass Effect because we love how greatly written the character is the lore mm-hmm. the worlds are made like it's 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 
it's fantastic, really. And it really, and like it really shows how you can have a game that has all these character moments in it. Like some of the best parts of Mass Effect don't even involve combat, no, or violence. They involve you know walking around, talking to people, um, sometimes manipulating people, depending on what kind of fem chef you're, what kind of chef you're playing. Fem <laughs> chef for me is the only only real chef. So yes, I get- <laughs> like fem chef's kind of man chef is no, that's just Man, that's- he's so boring. <laughs> He's so boring. <laughs> yes, yes, so boring. Like, not like a spark near, but like, you know, time shift for life, Jennifer Hill for life. It, exactly. Like, it's just, uh, and it, it really, it should, like, Mass, the Mass Effect series shows that you can have a game that balances all these different elements and it can work. And it, you know, you can have these very varied romances and it doesn't mean that it's a quote unquote, like, girl game just because it's got romance in it. Oh, yeah. Everyone's into the romances. Everyone's into, you know, building their relationships with the characters. And some of the best parts are comparing your experiences with other people. Yes, and and that's the best one too. And that's, re- like, when you play, when you compare on the gameplay side, like, you have different stories. When you compare character-wise, like, you're going to have different experiences. Whether that be, you know, the conversations you have with these characters or, let's say... Other experiences, quote unquote, um, yeah. like the, like how, how you romance them, and that's regardless of sexuality, whether it's straight, gay, bisexual, whatever. And that, and that's that's it's actually more or less dawned on me like this second, like just saying that how important that is. It's yeah, exactly. It's so important to have like give people like to make sure people know that that's an option, and to and it. What's great about Mass Effect is that. I just I've never really heard any conversations where people are judging other people for the decisions they make. Like I, I say like man chef or dude chef is boring, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna, you know, judge you for playing him or, you know like I don't like Caden all and I made sure Ashley died in the first one. But you know, I'm not gonna say that like your choice to keep them around was wrong because it's different. And I think it's a very, it's almost like a very friendly community in a lot of ways because people have such different experiences and people just love sharing them and people love playing the games over again to get different ones. Mm. It's, it's so, it's such a unique experience in that way because there are so few games where people have those kinds of conversations. Like I see, I still think, I see things on Twitter today where people are like, oh, you know, I don't know if I really want to get with Garrus's game because I really like Thane or, oh, but like Liara's my space wife forever. And so it's, and it's like people have so many emotions to these characters and they're all different and nobody, nobody has anything really horrible to say about anybody's choices, to be honest, unless you're, unless you're a dick, but mm. that goes without saying. <laughs> but, by the way, it's worth doing. I, I actually, uh, I actually saved Ashley. Caden can fuck off for all I care. <laughs> I hated both of them, to be honest. It was more. But it was more or less the, the the lesser of two evils for me. Oh, for me, Ash. Okay, so in my first playthrough of Mass Effect One, Ashley killed Rex. Oh, oh. Fuck. So she had to die. She had to die. <laughs> oh fuck! That's right. I remember. Um her killing uh, Rex and Maggie and I, oh fuck, yeah I, I really regret saving her now <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, cause like I'm like, Ashley stay there, I'm gonna go talk to Rex and she's like, meh fine, whatever, and then she kills and I'm like 
bitch. I told you to stay, I told you to stay there. What are you doing? <laughs> it was just not okay. And I was like, no, fuck you. You're staying behind. Yeah, get fucked. You're going to yeah, die. Like, this is not, this is not how I want my game to end. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's my, that's why I hate Ashley. <laughs> kittens i'm kitty powers matchmaker extraordinaire as we all know the path to true love is long and hard which is why i've created my new dating simulator run your own dating agency and become a lovemonger supreme well i never i've got a little black book full of lonely hearts and it's your job to find them love help them through delicate dating dilemmas Guide their passage through the turbulent tunnel of love. You can play with yourself or do it on the sofa with friends. At the moment, I'm playing a lot of Kitty Powers Matchmaker. It's one of my current favorite games. <laughs> which, um, which I actually, I mean, it, it looks so cutesy. I think intentionally so. Um, but when you play it, it's actually a really, really interesting and kind of mechanically rich uh, interpretation of dating in video game form—it's fascinating. I'm gonna—I'm hopefully gonna be doing a talk about it. Actually, at Video Brains. Maybe if I say this here, then Jake will have to say yes. <laughs> I, I'm definitely gonna put that on. So, and, <laughs> and Jake—Jake's actually gonna be coming on later this season. So, oh, perfect. And as of recording this, I'm doing his episode tomorrow. So, I'll be sure to bring that up. You'll have to tell him I said that. Yes. Um, but yeah, I really, really, really like it. It's really funny and just really, really fascinating the way they've, like I said with The Sims, I love the way game designers take a thing from the real world and turn it into a game system. And dating and romance is something that I'm interested in, in an academic sense. And I love the way that Kitty Powers Matchmaker has interpreted it into into video game mechanics. I think it's just fascinating. There's not really um, a lot of games these days that kind of handle the whole dating side. I don't know, on, on games. Like, there's certainly, for better or worse, games that have explored sex and sexuality in games, but never kind of dating. Like, as far as I know, like, there's Persona 4, which I know has done it, and, like, is perhaps the only game that's well-known to have done it. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously the whole dating sim genre and fortunately enough i've actually written about that recently for the observer um a really really brief kind of beginner's guide to dating sims um but the way they system systematize dating is is you know buy presents say nice things build up 
particular skill. You know, if you want to impress this guy, then you need lots of athletic skill because that's what he likes, whatever, which, you know, maybe that is a accurate representation of what dating is like. And maybe that's why I've not been so successful at it recently. But I like the way that Kitty Powers does it. I just like the, there's things like um, you play, you need to fart on the date and you want to hold it in. So you play a higher or lower card game to see if you successfully hold your fart in. And sometimes you don't manage and you let one out anyway. And depending on the other person's personality, they might be grossed out or they might think that that's fine. You know, better out than in. I just think that's really funny and kind of cutely, cutely real. You can't see this, but the look of expression on my face right now is just... <laughs> I heard you snapping. snapping priceless. This is, this is going to be tweeted out in a minute. Once oh, we're the done thing here. about Kitty Powers? Yeah. The, the exp- it's a great game. There's, I mean, gosh, what else do you do? You, um, you have the opportunity to, if you want the date to go more smoothly, um, you have the opportunity to tell lies. So, like, if they say, do you like my hair, and you don't, then you can lie. But in order to work out whether your lie is successful, you spin a wheel um, and it whether it, and it lands on, you know, successful or not successful and stuff like that. It's just, it's so funny. And you have to, um, to, tell, to tell an interesting story. Um, sometimes your date will go, um, I really want to hear an interesting story. And in order to tell them one, you have to do like a, you know, like a card matching memory game where all the cards are face down. Yep. You have to do that and you get like three tries. So they'll start saying something about a certain thing when you pick that card. And then if it doesn't match, then you'll put them down again. And when it matches, they'll go, aha, and then they'll tell the story. And it just reminds me of when you're trying to tell someone a story in real life and you know it's funny and you want to get to the end, but you kind of fumble along the way as you remember different things and you try and try and remember things. And it just, it's like an abstracted but strangely accurate representation of what that is like in real life. Yeah, that, just hearing anyway, about it. Anyway, you should play it. <laughs> yes, yes. I think, right. I, think, I think you've sold me on that. Definitely. Um, That's good, because I feel like I haven't even said the best things about it. <laughs> I'm almost tempted to ask, but for the sake of time, let's not. Kitty Powers Matchmaker. Out now on Steam. <laughs> Will the circle be unbroken by and by, by and by? Is a better home awaiting in the sky, in the sky? It was things like. Bioshock and it's it's again it's like the alternate history kind of psychedelic psychological horror and but, but it wasn't too scary it was just scary enough yeah that that was my thing with um, Bioshock initially I just took it as a horror game at first but after playing what well, I think it was the dem- it was definitely the demo I just can't remember if it was the Xbox 360 or PS3 but um, when I played the demo like after you know gathering enough courage to actually go and play it and then finish it, I realised 
this isn't actually that scary at all. It's more, it's more tense than anything, but definitely not scary. It's just a, a very tense shooter thriller, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but I, I love Bioshock. Uh, I've, uh, to my eternal shame, I've not finished it. I think I'm stuck maybe three quarters towards the end, last I left it, but... Oh, I, I, you I, must. I, <laughs> it's so good. I, I, I mean, like, yeah, I love Bioshock. And, and um, I really must play a lot more Bioshock too because I've played less of that than I have Bioshock 1 because I think I've played it about a quarter of that and I left no, I completely it. missed out Bioshock 2 and I went straight to um, Infinite on PS3. Ah, I've I, I finished Infinite. Amazing. One of my favourite games ever, actually, probably. I'm so glad that someone else thinks this because I, I absolutely love it and everyone I've spoken to has issues with it, but I, I personally enjoyed it. I mean, like, I can see, you know, one or two people's points with there being issues, because, like, certainly at times, there was... It did feel like at times the story could go way over your head, and, like, one or two fights in that game, like, were so, so... Ex- I don't want to know if... I don't want to say if exhausting was the word. I don't know if that's the right word, but, like... It does feel like that. But... I can certainly say there is one boss fight in that game which just completely tore my hair out. Like, I, I won't say anymore because it's still a fairly recent game, but, like, it was such a pain. But other than that, I, I, I love Infinite. I love Infinite. I, 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 I think it duly deserves more credit than it gets. It might be one, I, I hope, anyway. It'll be a slow burner. And eventually people will kind of be like, oh, this is one of the best games of that era. Mm. I, I actually think that's starting to turn out that way, to be honest. Like seeing uh, some places online, but or maybe maybe I'm just you know reading into things a bit too much. I don't know. But anyways, Infinite deserves a lot, lot more praise than it currently gets. That much is for certain. Will the circle be unbroken? By and by, by and by, is a better home awaiting in the sky, in the sky. obviously a massive fan of the systems of the game because like it's certainly an influence on what what you've been making like with uh, Heat Signature and with Gunpoint like mm. like the options that, that Deus Ex gives you stealth or go and guns blazing or just even like pure dialogue because I like for me like obviously there's a bit, I should disclose up front like baseline for me in terms of the series is human revolution and the fact you can use one of them, or even all three, uh, depending on uh, certain circumstances, um, is just—it's just amazing, like how you could do that. Like I remember um, a very unique um, demo uh, of Human Revolution 
or well not, cert well not unique, but it was certainly unique to me in the way it was presented. In that, you like Eidos Montreal. It was it was Gamescom, and they were presenting Human Revolution, and they presented three ways to play the game. It was just stealth, guns blazing, or uh, just dialogue. It was in Detroit, I remember. I think it was. Jean-Francois Dugas and Jonathan Jack Bellet that was in the, in the demo room and they were just demoing these three ways to play but um like like going back to Deus Ex 1 like um like I remember like I, I, I was reading your um Human Revolution review for um, PC Gamer and I remember and I, I remember how you first kind of started out that review with an anecdote of how you managed to use these kind of a combination of these systems in uh, kind of getting past uh, security guards. Like, yeah. Like, are there any other similar anecdotes that you like along those lines that you want to give that are from DSX One that you can remember, analysts? Yeah, I have a, a few, um, and they tend to be. I think that the, that kind of three paths thing. Um, that's something that um, has become quite popular now. I think with Deus Ex, I guess I probably did those early on. I mean, I didn't really ever do a guns blazing because I guess that was my first attempts and that's when I thought it was a really difficult shooter and I kind of hated it. <laughs> um, and one of the unique things about Deus Ex that hasn't been echoed in things like Bioshock or Human Revolution or modern uh, takes on the same thing is that the direct approach kind of wasn't viable. It was The direct approach killed you and that was what forced you to think of these clever approaches. Um, and so I would, I would come up with play styles each time I played and I'd come up with, um, uh, sort of rules for myself. Like, uh, instead of pure stealth and avoidance, um, or like pure non-lethal, I would try being stealthy, but lethal. So no one's allowed to see me, but if they do, if I'm in danger of being seen, I'm allowed to kill them. And as long as it's quiet and as long as no one else hears and stuff like that. Games today, like how, how do you see the... What games do you think combine those systems very well? I mean, like you mentioned earlier, Far Cry and, and Metal Gear Solid Five, especially for me with Metal Gear Solid Five, like everything can kind of switch on a, mom a moment's notice because, like, like you have this kind of so far so perfect, well, not perfect, but so far so good kind of stealth run through, and then all of a sudden you have this. I, you have something that kind of causes you to kind of go all guns blazing, whether it's an enemy that's caught you or it's through uh, an earlier decision made or, or whatnot. Like, for, like, that's, like Metal Gear is certainly a, uh, a game for me that would kind of fit uh, that description. Now, certainly in more recent games, but like, besides, um, besides Metal Gear, like, what, what other games like have stood out for you on that front? Um, I guess Dishonored is a really good um, sort of cross-section of a bunch of the things I like about Deus Ex. And it's a much cooler, much more slick kind of um, take on that. And it uses supernatural stuff to, um, uh, to solve a lot of problems to do with stealth and uh, giving you a broad set of tools. Being able to possess people uh, gives you... I don't think I ever end up using it that much, but the potential to, to use that for... Um, weird solutions is amazing and blink is uh again i was talking earlier about like how stealth games the ones i like tend to give you absurd advantages and blink was an absurd advantage you could just teleport you know invisibly uh, to anywhere and it also made stealth kind of fast instead of um slow and boring um and that also 
it kind of varied from level to level, but there were some levels in that that really had the Deus Ex feel of you can just circle this building and figure out how you want to get into it. Um, I think the... I can't remember what the level itself was called, but like the overseer's headquarters, the sort of religious um, enforcers, um, that building is an amazing one to figure out way, new ways into because you can get up to the um, like tiny ledges that go all the way around the building and figure out which window you want to go in through and um, stuff like that. Um, I guess that's... I mean, Bioshock is another one, uh, which I guess I already talked about. Um, and yeah, it tends to be games in that lineage that have have worked best for me. Mm. When you say Dishonored, I've just completely copped on something that you said earlier. That when you first started playing DSX, like you really, like you really hit it, or you you were hitting it because like you were playing it as, as a straight up shooter. Um, before before kind of getting into the stealth aspects, this was basically my problem as well with Dishonored. Um, admittedly, because I. I I knew I knew right off from the bat it was it was a stealth game, but there was always that part of me that just couldn't resist playing it straight up as an action game. <laughs> and a metal that is very much my fault for for yeah for, for thinking it, that. It's also been criticised for being too forgiving of that. It will kind of let you do it. You know, you can sword fight and you can shoot people. Um, and when I played it, it seemed like the punishment for that was just that those methods are not very satisfying. Like, even when they work, it feels a bit, like, kind of messy to me, at least. Um, and so it, I think I already I went into it knowing that it was going to be, um, you know, a game made by people with Thief in their lineage and um, uh, who love immersive sims and want to make games like that again. And so I kind of approached it from that perspective anyway uh, but i did go totally lethal in that game i just murdered <laughs> pretty much everyone um and the game really chides you for that like it's by the end of it it really tells you you did the wrong thing that was not the way to play <laughs> oops all, all the rats now all the rats yep uh I'll, I'll definitely bear that in mind when i finally get around to playing the xbox one version because I, I only just bought it recently 25 quid so I can't wait to play it again, but I'm going to try and, you know, process it this time. I still think it's more fun to kill people, like, stealthily, but um, if you go non-lethal, your options are so limited. You've got, like, a a trank crossbow thing and choking people, and that's about it. There isn't that much else you can really use. Whereas if you go lethal, there's all these, like, razor trip mines and um, shadow powers and uh, devouring people with rats and... Um, just a much more like exotic set of weapons, much more interesting options.
your your love for um, Rainbow sucks. Like, if if I had to poke you, like <laughs> like, uh, if I had to poke you to talk a little more about how much you love X. Ah, uh, sorry, not XCOM, because we've already done that. Like with Rainbow Six, like how how, how far are you willing to talk of your love for Rainbow Six? Yeah, um, Rainbow Six. Not even really when I played it. Like, I mean, I remember playing it and it was okay. Um, but I think what really happened, uh, I think when I really got into it was probably about 2001, 2002, four or five years after it came out, mm. is I was playing on PC and I just, I really, I really got into it. I really love, um, I'd put SWAT on a similar pedestal. Um, it's just that I feel like Rainbow Six did it first and so I should always give it the, uh, the credit, um, like I really liked that there was a plan and you had schematics and you had tons of information and it was like, look, this is the mission. You need to make this mission happen. Here are your options. Here are the pool of guys to make it happen. Like, make this work. And I, I, I really like that. So I like Metal Gear Solid Five, for example, because it gives you a whole lot of information and a lot of ways to make it happen. I've always enjoyed games like that. Like... um it's it's nice to play as a professional doing a professional thing mm. if that if that makes any sense yeah. like so rainbow six is nice because this is just like normal stuff for this guys it's like hey cool so i need you to uh i need you to raid this embassy and bring these guys out alive and they're like yeah cool i got that mm. um it makes you feel good it and it's it's just better than things like i mean in 1998, also, like, Half-Life came out, mm. and Unreal came out. And they're both fine games, but they're shooting games, you know? Like, um, Rainbow Six is not a shooting game so much as it is a thinking game. Mm. You need to it, think about who you're shooting. <laughs> it's, it's sort of a strategy game with, embedded within a first-person shooter, essentially. Yeah, and I guess... I guess potentially that's probably getting to the, getting to the, uh, the base of everything that I enjoy about games. Is that I need an element of strategy there? I need to, I need systems that are doing exciting things for my brain to interface with. Hmm. Mm. Um. So, like, what about the like the rest? Like going forwards in the future, uh, in the future, in terms of the series. Like, I my my first foray in the series was I think a demo of Rainbow Six Free, but my first proper foray for the series was. Rainbow Six Vegas. I really enjoyed Vegas. Not Vegas Two, not so much. Um, I mean, I, I as a Rainbow Six purist, I think Vegas is terrible. Um, I've enjoyed it. Um, I've played through the campaigns of Rainbow Six and Rainbow Six Vegas. Um, yeah, Rainbow Six Vegas One and Two. I've finished. I've played hundreds of hours of the multiplayer on both, mm. and I've already I've already got a copy of uh, Siege. Well, like I, I have paid for a copy of Siege. Ah, um, like, and I'm sure I'll enjoy that as well. But I really, I think after Rainbow Six Free, they really went downhill. Like I've given, I've given multiple talks about Rainbow Six series going downhill. But basically, yeah, they did free, and then from there, they just got increasingly kind of like console games, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But in the era when it came out. So Rainbow Six Lockdown, which was the first of the bad ones, was on the Xbox. And they basically just tried to turn it into a corridor shooter. And they gave you like a main character. And there was a big overarching plot rather than the mission-based structure. And 
I don't know. I guess I find it hard to buy into that because it took away everything that I really enjoyed about the original mm. and just replaced it with kind of meh. Mm. Although Siege seems to be a bit more old school than it yeah, has. Yeah, um, Siege's terrorist hunt mode sounds fantastic. Um, I haven't had a chance to play it and I won't get a chance to play it till the beta comes out mm. um, next week, week after. Mm, I think it's the week after, yeah. Yeah, at which point that's all I'll play forever. Uh, it's the week before I go to New York, so uh, I'm really glad because if it had been a week later, I probably would have not gone to New York. about, and this is a very recent edition I, I must uh, stress, but it's still a fantastic game nonetheless. Um, everybody's gone to the rapture. Oh, I, I don't probably, I can tear up talking about this game, I realise, because the other one I'd probably put on the same level of that is Valiant Hearts mm. as a recent game that really moved me in yeah. its storytelling. Obviously Valiant Hearts does a beautiful job of telling you about the war without it ever feeling like a video game about the war. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, as a obviously history student I, I loved it. I think everybody's gone to the rapture. Aside from the first thing everyone says, which is correct, is that it has the most beautiful video game score I've ever heard. Yep, just, and, Jessica Curry, by the way, oh, deserves all the plaudits for that. Yeah, everything. Like, she, If she doesn't get every BAFTA this year, I'm quitting the industry. Like, I'm done. <laughs> this is insane. Because it, it's swelling and beautiful and sweeping, and it reminds you that video game music doesn't have to be reduced in quality or scale because it's for a video game. Mm. You should never have to compromise the music in a game, and that game perfectly proves if you don't compromise, you can get this. I love that game so much, not just because the music is amazing, because, one, it reminds me of home a little bit, having grown up in small rural villages most of my life. But it's full of... Initially, I thought it was a game. I'm not going to spoil the story too much because it is quite new. Yeah. About future problem site, and it feels at the beginning a little sci-fi-y. And some of the marketing assets that were created to it made it feel like it had a very heavy sci-fi element to it. But it, the more you play it, and as you learn each character's story as you go through it, it just becomes about love in all these different forms, a mother, a religious man, mother, a child, a daughter, a boyfriend, a partner. And it's the most beautiful story about love and loss I think I've ever played. Mm. And it's been a, a rough year. I'd say we, both of us have had loss yeah. in life. And it was a game that really spoke to me about, oh my goodness, like what am I, 
this is this is what it feels like and it reminded me if you ever watched a film um waiting for a friend for, or seeking a friend for the end of the world which was um and nancy not nancy Myers. it was anyway a film with stephen carell and Keira knightley in it about the end of the world and it's 80 percent a bit daft and everyone wrote it off because they said it was like a rom-com but it wasn't it was never a rom-com it was about knowing you've got x amount of time before the end and what do you do and it was beautifully sad but beautifully poignant i think everybody's gone through rapture made you you came away from that game and you thought i've probably made some different life choices i'm gonna i'm gonna call my friends i'm gonna go out for dinner with people and then for like a week i was the most social person ever <laughs> called my mum told her i loved her and she was like what do you want <laughs> <laughs> thanks mum for the move by a video game not doing that again <laughs> Oh dear! Yeah, beautiful and graphically stunning. Oh, Feel, yeah. And and my PlayStation Four didn't sound like it was going to explode, so it didn't push the machine too much. Fantastic! Great, great job, Chinese room, making making sure PS Fours didn't explode. Good job. Good job, everyone. Thumbs up. kind of have an idea of what what to do after leaving the vault like what like like Washington is a, is a very vast world like you could go you could go anywhere from that point like you could even put Megaton to one side although like for me I don't know it's like playing the first time like I I'd actually find Megaton just by chance I didn't really know how much of a influence it would have in the story but like like when when I first entered Megaton like it was a really, you know, very. Sh- it was a shanty town. It was. It was a shanty town. Mm. That's that's like a really good introduction to the Fallout world, almost, because people are making do. And obviously, later you find bigger cities and towns, and people have got a more normalised life compared to. Well, they're trying to get back to pre-war existence. But Megaton is literally chaos, but it is it is existing on chaos. That it, it, exactly, it fries on chaos. 
especially when you have a nuclear warhead in the middle of the town. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't quite deal with that. I was like, why are these people absolutely insane and worshiping, worshiping a a nuclear warhead? It, was... it made, it made no sense. And then I, I, I eventually realised that there are several things that make zero sense. Does anything? Because make, yeah, just like people any, just go mad. Does anything make sense in Fallout? No. Exactly. <laughs> not even the vaults make any sense. <laughs> no, not at all. And then going into the bar with Moriarty, and like the first impression he gives is just what a dickhead! Like what yes. a cocky <laughs> dickhead! I always go with instincts in games like like Fallout and Mass Effect and Skyrim and anything like that where you interact with people. And my gut instinct was get the hell away. This guy's bad news, and I did everything on my way to sort of gracefully exit the conversation, not commit to anything, but not get myself killed. I've just completely remembered a really amazing story um, from from when I played Folly Free this past summer, um, and and it's in Megaton, and it's actually in Moriarty's bar. Um, so I can't remember the name of the guy who approaches you to blow up Megaton. Like, can, like, what's his name again? Remind me. Oh, um. Ten penny. That's a ten penny. Um, and he's sitting in the bar, and uh, like he, he gives you the choice of blowing up um, Megaton, and like you're obviously sitting there just like pondering like what to do, like whether to blow it up, whether or not to blow it up. And there's the mayor of um, Megaton, like just like I've I've warned him that this guy's here to say. Hey, I've just been offered by this guy to blow up Megaton with the nuclear warhead. Um, I think you should go and arrest him. Like, yeah, okay, I'm on that. So, I go into the bar. The da 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 da. da. Oh God, what happened? So you go into the bar. Mayor um conf- confronts um Tenpenny and like depending on the circumstances, he gets you to follow him. I think. Um. And then something amazing happened, and I don't think that was actually part of the story, or maybe it was, but like the way it acted out, it certainly didn't seem like it was part of the story. But just as the mayor is walking out behind, uh, sorry, just as the mayor is walking out with Tenpenny behind him, Tenpenny pulls out a gun and just kills the mayor. I like I can't I can't remember if if it was just if that was already part of the story if that was going to happen anyways but it was I was I was amazed um, just at that happening obviously all, all you know all hell breaks loose and you have to kill him right then and there um, but just that happening just caught me out and like I think I think the underlying tone of that is that expect everything in Fallout 3, including all the surprises, essentially. But, anyways, um, the all-important question, did you blow up Megaton? No. I go out of my way to help people in these games. I don't know why, because it's, it's not particularly something I do personally. <laughs> it's just I feel like people have, people have worked hard to survive, and I should help that. Like- I've always feel incredibly bad if I go around and be a dick to everyone. But was there not any temptation at all? Because, like, after all, it's a big nuclear warhead, red button, all out there. <laughs> because, hey, red buttons are tempting. 
They are the ultimate temptation. I did do another playthrough while I did blow it up. Ah, okay. I kind of had to. It was, it, was, it was curiosity. It had to be done. But for my proper playthrough, I didn't. Ah, curiosity kills the goal, basically. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Then, then they go from 10 second ninja to then do like castles for, uh, in the sky with or, like with Jack like that that was I don't quite know how to put this like in terms of, of a question but it was certainly um, it was certainly a change of tone a shift of tone anyways from you know 10 second ninja to something like castles in the sky because like you know castles in the sky was you know more more of a storybook yeah um and that was a very sort of deliberate thing right like so castle in the sky we actually developed midway through 10 second ninja's production uh i'd been doing 10 second ninja for like i think a year and a half um and i was getting really really fatigued i was like i need to do something completely different from this um just because like you know, no matter how much you love something, you stare at it for like sixteen hours every single day. Like, eventually, you're just going to need to look at something else. You're going to need to get in a different headspace. Um, and Castles sort of was that for me. I was pretty much uh, kind of like how I said earlier. Like, I I've always wanted to be a kid and stay a kid. Uh, that's why I I rate the first Kingdom Hearts higher than any of the sequels, just because like that is a game about being a kid. And very few things get the feeling of being a kid right. And I used to get really, really frustrated because I'd, I'd say to like my school friends and stuff, like, you know what? Like, I really miss being a kid. And they'd be like, yeah, you didn't have to do anything. And I was like, that isn't that isn't why being a kid was interesting to me. That wasn't why it was special. Um, what was special to me about being a kid was everything being bigger than you and you not knowing how the world worked. So everything was awe-inspiring and amazing and surprising. Um, and... I feel like as an adult you're never going to get that frequency of day-to-day like revelation again. <laughs> like just when you're a kid cause everything's new. Um and I wanted to make a game about that kind of that newness and that excitement and and everything being big and you not knowing what to expect from it. Um and I realized that you know games as a medium is a perfect way to explore that because you can create a world, you can create a place that the player 
doesn't understand and, and doesn't know what they need to expect from it. Um, and Castles ended up becoming a game about that, where we're like, okay, how can we set up these kind of very serene, I guess almost set-piece moments, but set-piece makes it sound like Uncharted or something, um, where, like, you have these moments of surprise and revelation, where you're like, oh, the game's doing that now. Um, and it's not, like, none of those revelations are scary. They're just tranquil. They're peaceful. They're they're nice. Uh, hopefully, a little bit awe-inspiring. Um, and Castles was just, like, a game about that. It was a game so instead of having to talk to my friends and be like, here is why I liked being a kid, and then not getting it, I could just show them Castles in the Sky and go, like, this, this was my childhood. This is how it felt. Um, and and thankfully, like, people got that. Um, like, I forget what who wrote it, but there was a blog post from someone, like, like a complete stranger, um, who wrote about Castles in the Sky and said, like, what it meant to them, and it was like they had written down everything I'd been feeling for the prior ten years. Um, like, ever, or, or at least ever since I'd left primary school, right? Um, and that's, like, that wrecked me. Like, I, it was... It, a hugely emotional experience. Um, just working on something that sincere. And, like, I'm not sure that kind of game is really sustainable for me. It's definitely, like, another. Uh, I want to go back and try and make a game like that again. Uh, I'm glad we got the success that we got from it. Um, I, I wasn't expecting getting a BAFTA nomination for it, for sure. Um, but it, it's not something that, like,. It's not something that I could do yearly, you know? Um, I don't think I could make, like, another Castles just because, like, I want a project to do. Um, it came from a place that was very honest, and the subject of Castles and just, like, that feeling of childhood had been something that had been on my mind pretty much every single day since I'd left primary school. Like, I can't do that on a whim. Um... So, yeah, it was it was a it was a game that I felt like I needed... Um, and just like as a developer I like making things that I need uh, for whatever reason like 10 Second Ninja I, I needed to make that just because it was like I I need to know that I can make a game that is like a gamey game that people respond to in the way that I want like I need to know that I can do that because if I don't know that then I'm going to be constantly worrying about it for like the rest of my life um, and Castles in the Sky was sort of a similar need but it was more like I need to express this because I'm never going to have an opportunity to express this quite as well um, so yeah like it it was weird to me because it didn't f- when I was making it it almost didn't feel like a tonal shift because like Castles in the Sky and Ten Second Ninja are just like different facets of me right like they're just different parts of my personality coming through in, in different ways that are like hopefully tonally consistent in their own individual rights. So to me it just feels like different aspects of my personality but I I, I can completely understand why it would seem like a big tonal shift to someone who isn't me because they just seem like two completely independent projects, projects that don't really overlap at all. No I mean like, I can understand like you know not doing like games like castles like every every year or so 
because, um, like for for obvious reasons, because doing doing those types of projects yearly or you know on a regular basis at least, like there wouldn't be a special when you do do them. Exactly, and and also like, like I I feel like games like that can only work if there is a sincerity to them, and I feel like if you have to force your emotions into them, um, they're not going to be sincere, or they're going to be half-baked sentiments. And, like, if the game is basically all sentiment, then that's not good enough, because you've just made a half-baked game. Um, like, there's... The, I get this here and there with a few indie releases, where, like, occasionally there'll be a... I won't name names. But there'll be, like, a big indie release or something that people write those articles about and go, ah, oh, it's amazing, it's so emotional. And I'll play it, and I'll be like... This feels like a game that's telling me to feel emotions. It doesn't feel like a game that has an emotional center to it. Um, and I, I don't want to make a game like that. You know, like, I I don't want to make a game where someone tells me to cry and then I cry. You know, like, that's not good enough for me. And Castle's... Yeah, and... Yeah, so especially taking that into castles, it we weren't setting out to make a game to make someone cry. We weren't setting out to make a game f- for anyone really. Like the Castles in the Sky was entirely a game, like for me and Jack, the the guy I made it with. Um, like it was, we made it because we needed it, because we wanted it to exist. We we made it because we wanted to express something that we felt like we couldn't otherwise, and that meant that. When people responded really well to it and we got really nice reviews, it was it was wonderful and we were we were glad. But like the the weird thing, that, and I'd say the main difference between Castles and Ten Second Ninja was with Castles, whenever we got a negative review and like you know any game gets a negative review, um, like if Castles got a negative review, it didn't sting, like it never felt bad. Because it was just like, well, like, you you clearly don't feel the same way about this game as we do, but, like, you played it and you got it, so, like, that's fine. Like, I don't feel like we have failed in our task of expressing this. I just feel like you, it doesn't, it's it's not your thing and that's fine. Whereas with Ten Second Ninja, I, I, I feel like the difference was, like, I was making that four players, I was making that four other people. So it was like if it got a negative review or something or, or someone was like, well like this thing doesn't quite work I would A uh I was probably already aware that it was a problem. Um and just didn't have time to, to kind of fix it before the game was out. Um and B because it was for other people it was then just like I couldn't f- fall back on my own emotions for it. Because it was like Oh no, I failed. Even though like the game generally was scored pretty highly, it was just like, oh no, I failed this person because I have failed a person and this was for people I have failed. <laughs> um which is ridiculous. Like that's such a stupid way of looking at things. But um yeah, it it definitely took some a while to get over that cuz like Castles actually launched first. Um 
and I mean that when Ten Second Ninja came out, I just wasn't expecting to feel that kind of gut reaction from negative press. I just thought I'd be cool with it. Um, but yeah, I feel like I'm a lot better with dealing with that now. Um, and definitely going forward with my projects, it's not something that I'm worried about. But it was that was a real tough lesson to learn, where it was like, oh, okay, some people just aren't gonna like this. Like no matter what I do, no matter what type of game I make, some people aren't gonna like it, and that's okay. Um, I guess the main difference was that with castles, I just didn't really care because I didn't make it for anyone else. Um, like we almost didn't release castles. That game was done for like two months before we launched it, and then we just kind of. Um, <laughs> actually, I. I'm not sure if he remembers this. So, Castles in the Sky, the reason we launched that one and we did was because uh, I met I met up with um, writer and game developer uh, Nina Race, who does uh, the, she did the Carnal House trilogy, she works, she's like the lead designer at Our Cave, um, does really, really good stuff. Um, and I met up with her before Eurogamer in 2013. Um, we met up at Loading Bar before they moved. And we were, we were just having a chat, and then uh, Mike Bithell happened to walk in, um, and there weren't any seats, so he he reluctantly sat with us. Um, and I was like, hey, like, why don't you see what I'm up to? And I, I showed him Ten Second Ninja, and I showed him Castles in the Sky. And I was saying that we were going to launch Castles in the Sky after Ten Second Ninja. Um, and I was like, yeah, we'll probably just like launch Castles in the Sky for free, and like, you know, send out like a press release, but who cares, right? And Mike basically spent like. 10-20 minutes completely turning my view around and being like no you need to release Castles in the Sky first because like people like this is how you get your name out there and then you can use that as like a launch pad to get Tencent Ninja off the ground once you've got like once people sort of recognize you as as a name in the industry um, and he was completely right he also made us charge for Castles in the Sky just like well he, he didn't make us he, he he said it would be a good idea to charge like a quid for it just because there should be a price on it because he thought it was worth the price um so what that basically meant was that because we knew that 10 Second Ninja was coming out in the spring we then had to spend two weeks rapidly getting together like a website a launch plan like press everything for Castles and we, we launched it literally like two weeks after that meeting with Mike and Loading. Um, which is just weird. I, I, I just like that as an anecdote. It's just like, Mike, once again, barged into my life, and I rapidly had to change the way I was doing things, because he showed me that I was being stupid. The more I hear about Mike Biffle on this show, and I say that as someone who has had him on this show, the more I think he is the indie Illuminati. They certainly he might well be. <laughs> I should probably stop taking the piss out of him. <laughs> he could probably just end my career in a heartbeat if we ever get on his wrong side. <laughs> oh well. Oh well, indeed. I'm just done now, isn't it? It is. It's all on tape. <laughs>
what other characters stood out for you in terms of Persona 3? Like, especially the one other character that kind of is perhaps the most famous out of the game is um, Aegis. Yes. Do you know, she was, I loved her, but she was probably my least favourite. And I was trying to think about why, because I had a lot of time for Akihiko, not just because he was a, you know, a dreamboat. <laughs> but I think Aegis, it was difficult to relate to her, at least, because I wasn't really into Japanese manga or anime at the time. And she's a very mecha manga mm. character, and she's very kind of, I know, all the jokes are around her not really understanding how girls should behave and how funny that was. But I think... It was difficult to connect her. Do you know, she reminded me of Miranda in Mass Effect. When oh. I was like, oh, Miranda, your problem is you're perfect. Meh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's difficult to find a level to connect to somebody. And even Aegis, who, her dilemma being her creation and how she fits. And I really don't, like, how she fits into the future of the world and the Tartarus is, is obviously a big, big reveal towards the end. And how she struggles with, you know, the classic AI dilemma of you're created to do this, you get really close to people, you, you crighten yourself and you break your programming. But I think for me, um, I always, if you could relate them back to Persona 4 characters, Junpei mm-hmm. was the one that I always had a real, a real connection with. He's the kind of the uh, Yosuke of Persona 3. And the fun, outgoing one, the one who really welcomes you at the beginning. But whereas in Persona 4, Yosuke is always, always looked at you. Regardless, Yosuke is always your best, best friend. In Persona 3, regardless whether you play as a girl or a guy, and if people don't know, when you play Persona 3, if you play as a female, you do get different dialogue options. You get slightly girlier music, pink menu. You know, years ago, people are not quite as sensitive to that now. But you get a harder story as well. But Junpei would, midway through Persona 3, just be a complete douchebag to you. Because he thought he was, like, the leader of this group. And he thought he was the, he'd be the strong one to protect all the girls and all the group. And you have a long period of the game where he's just terrible to you. Sort of like Ron was in um, Harry Potter and Order of the Phoenix. Where he gets jealous of the fact you're doing so well and feels left out. And even, like gets reckless, almost gets himself killed and falls this terrible enemy girl. And I remember really relating to that at the time because I was, I'd come through, I was going through uni, I'd, I was still really struggling with some of the bullying I'd had and struggling to grow up and figure out who I was. I mean, for goodness sake, if anyone sees pictures of me from that era, I've got long black hair and I wear bracelets up past my elbows. <laughs> I had no idea who Sarah was at this point. And I really related to this poor guy who thought he'd made this group of friends then got usurped by an outsider. Just came in and took all the glory. I, even Akihiko, who was this um, like the fighter of the group and was was very athletic and very handsome man that all, had like a group of girls that followed around everywhere. Even he would struggled a lot during Persona Three with kind of always being strong and being the one to lead people through. And it was the depth of the characters in Three that I think for me I really connected with. I think a lot of people did, to be honest. Even. Your, your your classic silent protagonist that you are, if you play as a girl or a guy, the different dialogue options you get are really interesting. They allow you to kind of be weak and strong in very different ways, which was really progressive for the time. Like, how many games could you list from that era where you could play as a female character that wasn't all bust? 
Exactly. I was actually just about to bring up the female pro tag as well, but um, um, yeah, like you said, it was there was nothing like it at the time. It was so progressive. Yeah. Um, and 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 in a lot of ways as well, because like, um, and and in doing it and reading up notes, because like I, I like I've only played perhaps two, maybe three hours, Persona three, so like the rest of the list is more or less notes, but. Agnes can fall in love with the female protagonist if the social link is maxed out. You don't, yes. you don't have that uh, in the rest of the games because obviously you don't have a female protagonist in the rest of the games. But like that, that was amazing. But like it also like brings forward the fact that Perso- the Persona series as a whole, like certainly from free onwards, is a very progressive thing when it comes to you know LGBT stuff. Because like obviously with Persona Four as well, there's uh, Kanji as well. And Naoto, essentially, and, and, the, trans identity. Yeah. That was a huge deal. I've never found the characters in Persona, and especially in Persona 3, sexualized in in any way. In fact, in Persona 3, I'd argue the boys are more sexualized than the girls. Because <laughs> um, I think it's never really been, even the romance. So, like, if you play as a girl in Persona 3, you can also romance Akihiko and Junpei. And they're two like wildly different romance options. And the Akihiko one is very sweet. The Junpei one starts off with him being quite, you know, boyish and braggish and like, oh, let's go back to your room, ha ha. And then when you finally do go back to your room, he's like, oh, I don't know, like, oh my goodness, let's read a book. Whereas in Persona Four, I always found that if you did the romance stuff, when you finally got like, I always romanced um, Yukiko because Yukiko is my bae. <laughs> Yeah. No, oh, I couldn't, you know, and I've seen the Japanese version of Persona 4, and I can't stand the American VO of TA. <laughs> it's like her voice is like nails on a chalkboard for me. And I always liked the kind of demure, like the outfit that Yukiko had, and I liked, you know, I really liked her dungeon, which sounds mm, like yeah. a, But But um, in 3, you'd romance, and it would become like, important to the person you romance how i'm going to fight for you i'm going to be strong for you whereas in four it felt more to me like now you're in my room and it was like just cutesy and fun but it felt important in three it felt like if you romance somebody regardless of your gender it was an important thing to do for example if you play as a boy in three and you want to romance mitsuru who is the main the main kind of female character in it it's really difficult because she's the the smart one she's like part of this huge um heritage with the company her dad owns she's really really studious so to do it you have to do so much stuff it's like you have to max out your study max out your intelligence you have to read specific options for her you can't fail any tests because the point is like she has got no time for your messing (laughs) she is not going to waste her time on some flaky boy like you have to earn the time with her and i really respected that in terms of games design they may not have thought it was meant to be that they, they may have thought, oh, we're just doing it because we want to, don't make it easy for people. But it always felt to me like it was significant mm-hmm. because Mitsuru is the character who, even though she was so strong, was actually probably the weakest and didn't know what she was fighting for and didn't really feel like she had any friends. So you having to really prove yourself to her in order to even get her on her own, she wouldn't even talk to you, zero dialogue options, um, I thought was really smart. And was it like similar to the, the trans with... Naoto and Kanji coming to terms with his sexuality or, or not really coming to terms with it in the case of what happens has always been representative of them being less about sex and more about 
what sexuality means to individual people. Mm. And it's the only franchise from, for me, at least, that does that in an adult way that is accessible and not, you know, hardcore or complicated or, or too or too simplified. It's all, it's all about the relationship. Yeah, and, I mean, I've had many debates about Kanji and 4, and I'm sure whoever you have on to talk about Persona 4 probably talks about it, but whether Kanji actually comes to terms with sexuality isn't really addressed. <laughs> <laughs> Four. It's worth noting that for anyone listening, he really struggled between Final Fantasy Seven and Persona Four when I put yeah. this to him. Yeah, it's Persona Four is a game like I love the Persona series. Three was my first one, um, which I also really, really, really love. But four tops it for me, and I guess the reason for that is just because the coincidentally, whenever I the times I've played Persona 4, at least most of the time I've played Persona 4, is when I've been going through a tough time. And the way, the fact, the fact that Persona 4 is about a bunch of high school kids and, you know, it's about, a lot of it is about growing up or at least themes that you can attribute to growing up um, and discovering yourself, finding yourself, all that kind of stuff, among other things. Um, it's, it's, those kind of things kind of really resonated with me when, you know, when I wasn't, for lack of a better term, you know, feeling my best. Mm. Um, and, you know, helped me really, really get through some tough times. And it's really kind of help, heartfelt. And the fact, as I mentioned before, as, as the fact that you have school kids growing up, it means that every character goes through something that you can relate to growing up, whether, spoilers, um, whether it be, you know, Yosuke going to moving, moving home, um, knowing nobody in his, his new environment, coming from a big city to a country town where, you know, there's nothing to do. He feels completely like a fish out of water, um, you know, to uh, Yukiko's sense of obligation to do what family wants her to do, even though she may not want to. And, you know, you go to every character there's, even if you don't necessarily like that character, there is something in there, in them, that they go through that you can relate to. And then through that, you grow to those characters. And it's a story about, you know, hanging out with your school friends. And then at the end of, of it all, you know, like school, you go your separate ways. 
So it's kind of, again, bittersweet like that. And I, yeah, it's just a very cleverly designed game. Yeah, I, I did have trouble picking between Persona 4 and Final Fantasy because, but for slightly different reasons. Persona 4, I think, has more personal resonance with me, mostly because of what I just mentioned and how it affected me at certain points of, in my life. Uh, and I could easily talk talk as much as I have for Final Fantasy as I could for Persona 4 and all its meanings and all that kind of stuff. Um, but Final Fantasy, whenever anyone asks me what my Final why, bleh, whenever anyone asks me what my favorite game is, you know, it's almost like, a, it's a reflex reaction, I'll say Final Fantasy 7. Hmm. Uh, even without thinking it. Um, and it's because it is, you know, it is my favorite game. I do, I can go back and play it. I mean, I'm playing it right now on iOS. Um, and I, I love it as much now as I've always have. And it's, you know, I, I owe so much to that game that it's, it's emotional resonance. Final Fantasy VII has affected my life, I think, in a much bigger way. And for that, yeah, that's why it's my favorite game. And also why, you know, I'm so, so thankful to it. I owe, I owe that game too much. We all jump I am much excited, but oh, uh, okay. the, the, delay, the delay sound. I did. I genuinely almost cried. I felt like the, the prickling behind my eyes. And in my office, Dan is also a huge, huge, huge Persona fan. And we were both just wailing at our desks. And everyone was like, oh, goodness, like, that must have been a terrible meeting we were in. And we were like, no, <laughs> just the internet told us something. And it's true. <laughs> <laughs> It never normally is true. <laughs> no, oh, I love it. It's I'm okay to wait for next year if mm. it's like January the first it comes out, <laughs> <laughs> so that I'm not waiting too long. No, 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 absolutely not. It's I cool because there's, there's not that much information. Like you're student in the day, thief at night, and you're, and you're homeless. You live on the streets, or you live in like abandoned buildings and things. And it's definitely Shibuya Tokyo, or it's like the world's clearly supposed to be, but not really town but there's so much that i don't know because it looks like you know when they when they summon the personas that the mask is the evoker yeah for what i can tell and that the other the male the female character like they have literary inspired personas so like his is like blackbeard hers are like something like in wonderland but i've not seen enough shots of the main protagonist persona to see to see what it is because mm. everything feels like really kind of literary all the trailers that like you're running through paintings you're in these these huge big towns. Oh my god, the, the clips of them in the classroom, like just the graphics. I don't think my body is ready for the graphics. <laughs> <laughs> like with Persona Five, like at least with 
like from the second trailer onwards, because like it's been, or or yeah, from the second trailer onwards, because I'm thinking of the actual revealed trailer with the five chairs and the five shackles uh, adding into that. But um, yeah, with the second trailer, like it's so slick. It's yeah. so it's like it's like you have um Miguru's music like just beating uh beating away there, and then you have like all all, all the main characters just you know, doing their thing. It's so slick and so stylish. It's it seems a lot more slick and stylish than compared to or at least certain certainly in a promotional sense, I don't know, compared to three and three and four. Yeah, definitely. I, I I think having the backing of Sega is probably helping Atlas quite a lot in terms of getting really high quality assets out and obviously you could speculate wildly that's also, you know, why the game's delayed. But <laughs> Um, I think for me, what really comes across in the trailers is just how different the combat looks. Mm. Like, there's that clip of him, like, sweeping from side to side in the corridor to sneak up on things. I'm like, you can sneak up on things without having to run behind them. That sounds amazing. <laughs> that sounds like what I've wanted to do for a long time. Mm. And you can, like, you can play video games with your cat. Video games with your cat. What other game can you do that in? Huh? 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 None. Exactly. <laughs> Literally, that's the way of Persona. Anything you say you can do in Persona, chances are you can't do it in any other game. <laughs> um, I do think that cat, yeah, that cat, like, how do you see that cat going? Is that going to be better than uh, Teddy? I hope, I kind of hope so. I hope it isn't a person inside of it again. Oh, God. <laughs> Actual Teddy's kind of creepy when he becomes human. I was always like, ooh. Like, it's, it's, it's endearing when he's in the suit, not so much now when you find out he, there's an actual real-life boy inside. A real-life naked boy inside. I mean, that's just not something you want to have to think about too much. Look at me, Pa! I'm a real boy now! <laughs> oh, even though it's so disturbing. Um, like, when we first saw that trailer earlier this year, like, it started this year, like... The other vibes we got from it was like it was super, super like Catherine. Yes, it feels very Catherine, especially the female character design in it from the other girls in your group whose name yeah. I can't remember. Um, but Catherine was a great game. I loved Catherine. Mm. It was the hardest game oh. I've played it in so long. But yeah, loved it. I, I really wanted to come to Vita. That's my dream. Catherine on Vita made me really happy. <laughs> I'm, as somebody who is one of the few people I think who uses their Vita religiously, I would like more games for that. <laughs> Um, but like it's not it's not just the graphical sense as well because well obviously it is the graphical sense in part because it does look so much like Catherine, but it's also the social aspect as well because like you can now text your friends in it as well. It's like Catherine. I know. I wonder if as well because it looks like some of the enemy design is the same. Mm. So like in the trailer they showed at TGS recently, they you saw the Sandman in it. There was um that same kind of startled you know sound when you find them, but. I'm really torn because part of me wants to obsessively watch everything they do. The other part of me, I kind of don't want to know too much. I especially don't want to know any of the story. I don't want to know too much because one of the great things with Persona has always been that opening introductory section where you learn. Especially if, like, if you're a thief and living on the streets, it's got to be have a cool story behind it. Hmm. How did you get there? Where are your family? How are the other kids on the street? Like, what? Tell me more. Just give me a little bit of something, and then I can stop obsessing. The longer it is, the more I obsess, and then I ruin things myself. <laughs> did you see the theory about Persona Three and Four remastered? I did. Yes. <laughs> I oh, think that that sounds right to me. That's it has to happen. It just makes so much sense. I reckon that's what they're gonna. They've delayed it to put those out this year as a stopgap because Atlas don't do anything on accident. 
Hmm. They're not a company. Oh, look at the mysterious way letter disappeared. There's no way. It's too specific. I, I, I do think that's going to happen, but if it does happen, it's not going to be this year. Certainly not in the West. No, it's like, if anything, it'll be very, very late early next year in Japan. I don't know. It'll, uh, yeah, I, I can, yeah, it'll be very late this year, early next in Japan. And then summer next year in the West, while oh. Persona, 5, Persona 5 comes out, like, say, September next year in the West. I don't know. Yeah. Because it makes the biggest load of sense. Because, like, if, if Persona 5 is coming out next summer in Japan, then Persona 5 is going to come out in the West, I would say, September, October. And God knows when it's going to come out to Europe. Who's going to, who, God knows who's going to publish it in Europe. Having had Dan Sito on the show, me and Dan have never agreed on importing, because I import sometimes. Mm. I, I'll probably import Persona 5 from the States if it comes out there much sooner. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I'm the same. I'm going to do it. I mean, I've done it for Dancing All Night as well, but that's because I want the Disco Fever edition, and they announced the European version of that too late here, and I was like, oh, "Yeah, I wasn't going to risk it." Um, I, I actually imported my version of, or I imported a boxed copy of Persona 4 Golden from Japan, even though I don't know a lick of Japan because I wanted to play that game so bad. You know, Persona 4 Golden. Um, I wanted so much when it came out and I couldn't get any. It was like a huge gap between the UK and US. And Greg Miller sent me it when I was working at Rocksteady. We'd met a few times and, we'd, and I was on Twitter wailing about the fact that I couldn't get it. And he bought me it and sent, shipped it over. <laughs> Cementing our Persona friendship. Every time I see him, he gives me a new piece of Persona merch that he's picked up somewhere across the world. <laughs> it's so cool. I love him so much. <laughs> I didn't expect that story. <laughs> Uh well, it's going to be a long wait for next summer, basically, and it's going to be a long wait for whatever comes next. In terms Are you of getting fairness. Dancing All Night? That's the question. Have uh, you got it ordered? I don't have it ordered because I'm 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 picking I'm picking my battles there. You don't know how hard this upcoming season is with games. Cause like what else is there? There's there's your own fucking game. There's Fallout well, Four. Yeah, I mean that's a given. But like, there's, there's also Rise of the Tomb Raider, Halo 5 Guardians, um, what else is there? There's Just Cause uh, Blade. there's so many! Star Wars as well, I Star guess. Star Wars, yep. Yeah, you don't need these games, you don't need them, just play Fallout. Including your own Fallout. Game. Fallout will take all the time, you know, for, like, it's like insane amount of time for that game, you're going to have your dog meat running around with you, you want to like, do your own town mini games, your crafting, I don't think you need the other ones, cancel all your orders, keep Fallout 4, there you go, I've just saved you about £300, you're welcome. So just Fallout 4 <laughs> and I'll just say, I'll just, I won't bother with dancing all night then. Yeah, okay, I accept that, <laughs> Fallout 4 is the king, I'm fine, and I'm, I'm actively saving you money on this now, and everyone else listening, I'm saving you all money, cancel all the pre-dos. You just need Fallout 4. <laughs> just imagine what it would be like if Fallout 4 and Persona 5 were launched on the same day. Imagine I would, the conflict. None for me, Fallout 4, but then inside I'll weep silently.
what was the first time games like became part of home home life? Let's say. If well, my first console, I did particularly well with my exams to get into secondary school or high school, and I was rewarded with a PlayStation. And I saved up for God knows how long, and bought Final Fantasy VIII, and I was absolutely in love. Ah, like like like. To- yeah, talk about Final Fantasy. Like, uh, how much did that kind of experience change for you? Like, how 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 was that? How was that experience for you, basically? I think the appeal was the escapism. So I've always lived in London, and I've travelled, but it's not been particularly wild. And the world that you get in Final Fantasy, or anything along those lines is so different and it was like reading but watching it and it was better than films because you were doing it that, that kind of um interactivity was you know a lot better than you know just something static like reading a book or whatever yeah um like what was it that enamored enamored what was it that kind of attracted you to final fantasy you said the escapism but like what else was it that attracted you to that game? I think it was it's somewhere between the whole sci-fi and fantasy elements which oh. I, I read a lot of in books but it was, it was just something so different to everything else I'd seen Ah, like it was basically the whole lore of that game that kind of brought you in basically? Like the, yeah. yeah Like the characters, like Squall, Squall and all? Yeah, it was there was, it wasn't just, here you are, fighting some monsters, have at it. There was a backstory and infrastructure and politics and, I don't know, drama. It was just amazing. Human Revolution, and like you said yourself, like you were kind of debating between either DSX one or Human Revolution uh, being the kind of main focal point for this episode. But like, and Human, uh, and like I said, Human Revolution is like the one that I've most played. Like I think I've played about I'm fucking three quarters, I've three quarters finished the game on Xbox 360, and I've played about 
a quarter of the game on PC anyways and like Human Revolution like it was such a massive undertaker especially for an upstart studio like Eidos Montreal because like Eidos Montreal were completely unproven at that point they had no uh, games at that time up until Human Revolution so like the talk of your experience with, with Human Revolution but also like that kind of pressure like Eidos Montreal must have faced uh, with Human Revolution because like, like I said it was the first game but they pulled it off so yeah. so well yeah it's a miracle <laughs> I saw it as a journalist at preview um, and I think it was the first time they'd ever shown any gameplay from it at all like until then it just been sort of these very vague statements they'd made and um, I was there with uh, Will Porter who's um, also a massive Deus Ex fan and um we're both, I don't think either of us expected it to be good. I think we were both like, I, I was kind of in Deus Ex 2 mode. So I was like, you know, I love Deus Ex. I know this isn't going to be Deus Ex, so, but I'm open to it being something else. You know, if you want to take some lessons from Deus Ex and make something else, then I'm interested in that as well. Um, and then when they actually showed it, uh, it was just like, you kept waiting for it to go wrong. Like every part of the demo I watched, I was like, when is it going to get shit? It's not shit yet. It's really good. <laughs> And it looked like it looked like all of the kind of open endedness of Deus Ex, but everything you did in it was cool as well. So like when you do sneak up on someone and shoot them in the head, it's with a badass silenced pistol that just has, makes the perfect sound, and their ragdoll flops in the perfect way. And instead of, I mean, there are plenty of vents in it, but um, they're not the only alternate routes in. And so like stacking a box uh, on top of another box to reach a window and then opening the window. Um, I think both me and Will kind of nerded out at that moment because stacking boxes is kind of like <laughs> one of the principal ingredients of a Deus Ex game. Um, but then also just, I couldn't think of a, if I'd even seen anyone open a window in a game before as like an infiltration method. I was, when I came out to the window, I was expecting him to smash it. And then I realized, oh no, you can just open windows. So that's the whole thing you can do. <laughs> um, and it just looked like, you know, all of that stuff that I love, but done in a much more slick way. And for the most part, it was, you know, once I actually played it, I absolutely loved it. Um, and... Uh, it just had that feel of having all these options, but all those options are really cool. And uh, the, probably the biggest difference is um, uh, in melee stuff, which is actually like I kind of focused on melee stuff in Deus Ex One, even though it was garbage. <laughs> it was uh, like the feel of hitting someone in Deus Ex is so bad. It's just like the police baton makes a kind of woo noise when you attack with it, and uh, when it hits someone, it makes this like terrible kind of clack that doesn't feel at all impactful and then maybe they sort of go and fall over or maybe they don't and uh stabbing someone with a knife has almost no effect <laughs> um crowbar was was kind of satisfying that was one of the only ones that was actually good to use then you get like the dragon's tooth nano sword and it looks like a lightsaber that could scythe through any flesh but instead you just kind of whack people with it and go and they take a little bit of damage each time <laughs> and so it's all kind of pathetic and then human revolution went all out on that and did like third-person cutscene takedowns for um, which I thought were going to feel out of place, but actually in-game I kind of liked them and the animations were so uh, brutally horrible that I was always just watching in a mixture of like horror and delight. I was like, ex- like appalled at what was happening, but also kind of thinking like, wow. <laughs> There's once you get the multiple takedown org, like, you know, by default, you can always take anyone out that you can reach at any time. Um, but you can upgrade it, take out two people at once. 
And if you do that, then they have special animations for that. And if you do a non-lethal takedown, then one of the ways you take on two people is like you grab one and use them as a shield as the other tries to punch you so that they punch their friend <laughs> and then you punch them. Uh, then if you go lethal, then one of them is you pick one of the people up and you throw them at the other person so that they fall down in a pile and then you drive your chisels through both of them <laughs> like at once to save time, I guess. <laughs> and that stuff is like horrific but really satisfying in its own really brutal way. Mm. Human Revolution was such a satisfying game, it's needless to say. It was it was the first stealth game like and, and I say this as someone who adores the fuck out of Metal Gear <laughs> but it was the first game that made me really want to try like stealth like as a proper playthrough and actually stick to it because with Metal Gear right. with Metal Gear I, I would try and do stealth but Whenever I got caught, I was just like, "Fuck it," and just shoot the place up. <laughs> but, but, but with Deus Ex, this it was the first time with a game, or sort of a human revolution. I was like, it was the first time with a game where I certainly want to, you know, try and actually stick the stealth this time. And there was definitely a very rewarding feel to staying with stealth with. Uh, or playing stealth in Human Revolution compared to, you know, trying to do stealth, getting discovered, oh, well, fuck this shit up, bang. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's got a very, um, uh, the systems for that just work really well. Like I was saying before, the, um, the vision range of the guards in Deus Ex 1 was just comically low, and they kind of couldn't do that again, because these days that's, I think, so easy to ridicule that it kind of, um, doesn't work if you're trying to make a sort of mainstream game. Uh, and so their way around that was, I think, the third-person cover, which was something that a lot of the team members um, worked on Rainbow Six Vegas. Um, and I had played that at the time, and I, I think I liked it, but I d- didn't really stick with it. And then when I went on this preview trip to see Deus Ex Human Revolution, and I knew about the third-person cover, and I had to ask, like, you know, couldn't that feel jarring to switch perspective? And isn't it kind of getting too far away from it being a first-person game? Um, and they said, well, if you if you ever played Rainbow Six Vegas, then it's just exactly the same as that because, you know, we worked on that game and um, we thought that system worked, so we're doing it again. And so I went home and I wrote out my preview and stuff and then I thought, I should try out Rainbow Six Vegas. And I played it again and got totally obsessed with it. <laughs> the cover system, I think, is brilliant and it is the same in Deus Ex, Human Revolution, and I think it's brilliant in both games. And it's, I think it's the only cover system in games that I like at all and I think it's actually great, whereas every other cover system I've ever used has been a, like a plague on the game that's actually actively hurt it. Like even Metal Gear Solid, which is a very... Uh, Metal Gear Solid Five is a very slick game in general, and most of the controls are good. And the cover system's not the worst, but it does frequently glue me to surfaces that I didn't want to be glued to, or um, you know, I'm running up to something to fulton it, and my guy takes cover instead, um, and it constantly misinterpreting what I want to do. And... Human Revolution and Rainbow Six both uh, are always just completely reliable. It will only take cover when you're pressing the button. And as soon as you release, they'll stop taking cover. And so it's never gone wrong. It's always been a a help rather than a hindrance. And that is also the primary stealth tool, I think. You take cover, and then you can see past the cover. And so you have tactical awareness in a way that isn't at all fair or realistic, but means you can make good decisions about where you're going to go and 
plan your approach ahead of time and um, yeah, make stealth really satisfying, I think. It does also, uh, one of the things I appreciated about Human Revolution was um, there's a whole branch of orgs, like I think about four or five that are just, they're all about stealth, um, even separately from the cloaking ones. Um, and all they do is give you intel. So there's one that, gives, that lets you see vision cones on your minimap. And there's one that lets you get an alert when someone sees you, I think. And there's one that lets you see how much sound you're generating. And they're all just things about visualizing what's really happening in the game. And so they kind of like bring, they surface game mechanics um, in a way that you can see. And that feels like a really cool way of, of doing stealth without making you so powerful that you don't have to do stealth. Because I think that's one of the problems with stealth games is they want to give you new powers. Often the new powers mean you don't have to be stealthy because now you're just so good that um, it doesn't matter. And cloaking is kind of is one of those, you know, lets you not be stealthy because if you're cloaked, you don't have to hide behind stuff. Um, but I think Intel is a really good upgrade route to kind of let the player feel more powerful and give you a really useful upgrade, but without saying you don't have to be stealthy anymore. Mankind divided. Like, it, do, it, so, it does seem like it's going to refine a lot of things from Human Revolution, but it's also the first game in which... There is a story continuation from it, like at least certainly from the protagonist side of things with Adam Jensen coming back, anyways. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's the first time they've done the, the same protagonist twice. It sounds like, I don't know, what have you heard about the ending? I've kind of forgotten what they said. Like, which ending do they carry on from? Do they pick one as canon or do they say they all happened? Or I can't quite remember myself, actually, to be honest. And, and like I said, I'm, I've only about three quarters finished on Xbox 360, so I've actually... Oh, yes. <laughs> um, so with, with Deus Ex 2, they said that all three endings of Deus Ex 1 kind of happened. Like, not all quite how they said, but, um, like, JC does merge with Helios, and uh, so the AI ending happens. The Illuminati do still stay in power, and they still rule over everything, but the Area 51 is shut down, and there is a big communications blackout, and so, yeah, all three of the things kind of happen. Um, but I don't know if they can do that again with Mankind Divided. Um, I'm kind of glad they're sticking with the protagonist because it's really difficult to make a good protagonist. I think Adam Jensen is good. I, like, There's not that much to him as a person, but that kind of suits me. That's what I want from a protagonist, really. I don't want them to have a, a really strong personality that can clash with what I'm trying to do, particularly in a Deus Ex game where I'm going to play it through multiple times and sometimes I'm going to be a, a vicious bastard and sometimes I'm going to be merciful. Um, and I really like his voice. <laughs> it's, that was When I first saw it, that was one of the first things that I thought, what the fuck? Because his voice is so gravelly and it's kind of absurd at first. Um, but it, it also... It doesn't sound put on. It's an unusual voice, but it sounds like it's that guy's actual voice. And when I was playing The Witcher 3 a while back, and I really don't like Geralt's voice, and it's very similar to Adam Jensen's voice. And I was trying to think, why do I like Adam Jensen and I don't like this? Am I just being biased because I like Deus Ex more? Or, um, but I really thought, like, it feels like Geralt, is the voice actor, is putting on a tough, a gravelly voice, whereas Jensen feels like it is, he just has a gravelly voice. And I was really pleased to find out that is actually true. Elias Defexis, the voice actor for Adam Jensen, just sounds like that. That's how he talks in normal, real life. And the guy who does Geralt, I can't remember his name, but he doesn't talk like that in real life. <laughs> so I was right. If you have a naturally gravelly voice, it kind of works. So yeah, I'm glad they're sticking with him because um, I feel like you can just, you know, I care more about Adam Jensen than I do about some new character they'd introduce and there's a decent chance that the new character they introduced would be one I didn't like so if they have one I like then I'm glad they stick with it
actually the main crux of why I wanted to bring you on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, so with people coming on the show, I get to ask them about their favorite games and all that there. Truth is, this is perhaps the first time I've got to talk to someone about one of my own favorite games, and that is uh, Journey. Oh, yeah. And I can't even begin to tell you how much <laughs> Journey means to me. It is oh. an, an incredible experience, and you played a big part in that, and I have to thank you for that. It's, it's, oh, thank you. It's, it's, it's such a wonderful one. Like, like, I mean, like, what can I say that hasn't been said already? It's just wonderful. And the funny thing is, I only just realized that it would fit in in my top three games ever quite recently with the launch of the PS4 version. Um, so, I, like, I, I have to ask, like, um, like four years on from its release on PS3, like yeah. how 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 do you feel about that game now? Like knowing that it is so well received and even so well loved, so to speak. I still love it. You know, I mean, I can't list Journey in my top three games because I worked on it. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not polite to say you know one of your own games in your own list. But if I if I were able to break that rule, I would do it. Um, I still love playing Journey. You know, even though I can see all the things that we didn't get to do, <laughs> to do perfectly, and every little level is like I know every corner of it. Like I memorized it inside and out, and every cue and every camera cut and every little tiny detail of the way the cloth moves and the character moves and each little rock in every little place. I it still is a place to me. It still feels like just I don't know. It's still a different place. When we first started working on the game. We did an offsite in uh, the, near the Pismo Dunes, which are a, they're north of Los Angeles. It's a big sandy dune area. We wanted to go out into the sand and experience like what it felt like to be in the sand and like run around in it. We stayed out late at night. We made a bonfire. We did some sound recordings, and I still have uh, at my house um, a glass jar with a bunch of the sand from that trip and some shells and bones and stuff that we found out in the dunes um, that I kept from that trip. And when we were out there, we were talking about, okay, well, 
what's journey going to be like? You know, like, what do we want it to be like? And I was trying to get everybody on the team. There were only six or seven of us then to, um, to talk about like, how would it feel? And there was this moment where we were writing down, you know, what our vision of it was. And I was saying like, I imagine that it'll be like a museum kind of, or an ancient ruin where like, you know, when you first discover a place or when there's an opening in a museum of like, say a retrospective of someone's work, everybody rushes to see it. It's very busy and crowded and there's a wine and cheese party and the press cover it and everything. And it's a thing, it's an event. But later, after it's no longer novel, um, there will always be a few people that just go back. They'll go back to that part of the Louvre or, you know, the National Gallery, or they'll, they'll go back to Greece to that one place or to these dunes, you know. They'll go back to that place and they'll, they'll just be there because it, for them it's meaningful. And Journey is a place like that for me now. Like, it's, it's a place that has a meaning that goes beyond itself. It's bigger than it's bigger than what it is for me because it's representative of all the hard work that we all put into it, um, and we worked so hard on it, um, and of our values and how we we stuck to our guns and really decided to to make a game where no, there was no chat, no, there is no, there's no texting, there's no there's no voice chat. You can't you can't know this person until you really have played through. Um, we. We insisted on making the game we wanted to make. And it wasn't easy, but it was totally worth it. And I think everybody, I can see each member of the team in the game. I can see the fingerprints of every individual person who contributed um, in every little decision. And I can still remember most of the levels and the editor. (laughs) You know, even though I have all this metadata, it still has transcended all that for me. It's still, I can play it like an experience, which... And it doesn't get old. And that's, I can't say that about anything else I've ever worked on. There, you know, I've played Boom Blocks and I've played My Sims and I've played Sims 2. Um, but for me, Journey still feels magical um, as a thing. It's more than the sum of its parts. And I think if, if that ever happens again in my career personally, that would be amazing. Um, but even if it ever happens again in my lifetime, like, I will be so grateful. Like, it's very rare for a game to sort of get that magical, you know, to get to that level of being transcendent. And I do think that Journey did it. Mm. Um, I just want to touch upon something that um, Genova mentioned. Like, I, I interviewed um, Genova a few years ago as part of a joint interview Sony was holding with um, Ian Dallas of Giant Sparrow. And they were, yep. and, and they were announcing uh, Giant Sparrow's free game deal with um, Sony Santa Monica. And the first That's game, right. The first game out of that deal was the Unfinished Swan, but Genova was on the call. And I remember asking him about Journey's kind of release at that time. It was only out for a few months then, but like um, he mentioned to me that he was getting somewhere like 200 emails a day or something on Journey and saying yeah. the kind of feedback on it and then he had to kind of basically tune out at that at, at that point, but, but like there was one or two emails that kind of stood out for him in terms of how much the game meant to people yeah. and it, it was crazy. We actually- yeah, we actually have a mailing list, all of us that worked on it. And occasionally one of us will get an email that we just send in. And so we just have all stayed in touch um, when we see something that really is resonating with us about the game, you know, whether it's fan art or someone writes a really beautiful blog post or we get a fan letter from somebody. Like it goes up on a list because, 
you know, it's just, it's, it's encouraging to be able to see that it still resonates with people. And yeah, there was that one letter in particular from the girl whose father had died and then she'd gone back to play it later and felt like she was able to spend time with him. And it still brings a tear to your eye, you know, to think about it. You know, it's, she was like really young too, like 15 when she wrote the letter. And, uh, and it's just, it's, it's, it's amazing that we were able to to bring that to, to people. It, it was hard. You know, we didn't know if people would find it just too simple or, you know, too, too basic of an idea. Um, when we were working on it, especially in the middle when it wasn't really working and it wasn't fun to play and the movement wasn't in and the sand wasn't done. Like there were a lot of times when I would force the team to play through the whole game and everybody would just be grumbling like, oh, it's such a crap game and it's never going to be good and we're doomed and we've bitten off too much and we'll never be able to finish it and to be able to get over that hump and really see it resonate with people even if it had been two people it would have been amazing you know the fact that it's been thousands of people and that the game is doing so amazing on playstation 4 and you know it's just it's really it's really rewarding Mm. um so what do you see as a legacy of journey going forward then so to speak There are so many people who have said to me that they got the courage to make their own independent game after seeing Journey or that Journey convinced them that games could be art or that Journey made them feel like games could be about something much more than winning, you know. Um, I think that its legacy is going to be that it, 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 it will always be for the people that have played it, you know, one of those moments where you realize that we are just at the very edge of all the things games can be. It's just it's really, it's a proof that there is blue ocean out there. There's so much stuff to be, to be made. Um, and, uh, and that's great. You know, um, if you were to sort of think of Katamari and the games that Kata has made and even Watam as being kind of, we're sort of trying to stake a claim and reclaim childhood and reclaim joy and say, okay, we're not going to cede this territory to violent games or achievement-based games. We're going we're gonna to take back some space for games that are just celebrating the joy of movement. Journey is on the other end of that spectrum. It's, it's pushing everybody. It's like pointing in the direction of the unknown and going, you got to go there. Like, this is important too. And I think both of those things are really important. I think actually when you look at the spectrum of things that can be done in games, I think it's really important for us to take back what it means to be a kid and to sort of de-operationalize childhood and make it be a celebratory and open-ended and free and creative time for kids and to celebrate those feelings in adults as well. I think that's so important. But I also think it's important to sort of push beyond our normal interaction paradigms and make us think twice about should you really get a reward every time you click and should you really be able to just execute your power constantly and should that other player be an obstacle always um, it's important to ask those questions too
Thanks for listening to My Favourite Game Season 3. My thanks to the 10 people who have joined me this past season to talk about their favourite game. Jordan Erica Weber on The Sims 2. Dan Pierce on Clonoa 2. Harriet Jones on Fallout 3. Sarah Wellock on Persona 3. Jake Tucker on X-Com, Enemy Unknown. Carly Velucci on Silent Hill 2. Tom Francis on Deus Ex. Daniel Sito on Final Fantasy 7. Robin Honecky on Katamari Damase. And Sam Barlow on A Mind Forever Voyaging. My favourite game will return sometime in the new year. Until then, stay tuned for future episodes by following at MFG Podcast on Twitter and following us on Facebook at facebook.com slash myfavoritegamepod. You can also follow me on Twitter at Johnny Cohen. Until then, thanks again for listening. Bye-bye. Ah, I've almost forgotten. We have one final episode to come this year. Season 3 is done proper for good this time. But next week, we have one final special. My favourite game of 2015. Guests from seasons 1, 2 and 3 come on one more time to eschew the kind of, well, one big rule of my favourite game. Talk about their favourite game of all time. We're bending out just a little bit for this one special. To talk about their favourite game of 2015. So stay tuned for that next week. Until then, bye bye. Owen, Merry Christmas.